Hello, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 148, and we're interviewing Justin G. How are you doing, Justin? Good. How are you doing today? Doing well, and I just realized I made a mistake. You go by Geo. You were just yeah, talking okay. about that. I was looking at your Zoom name. So let's get started. Let's talk about your childhood and growing up. Okay, so, um, you know, my childhood was, you know, fairly normal in the very beginning. I was born in New Jersey, and I come from uh, a very big family there. Um, my dad's side of the, the family is Italian. Uh, my dad was one of six siblings, but he had a lot of cousins. And then my mom was, um, she's Irish, and she was one of 10 siblings. And same thing, you know, big family. Um, I had a lot of aunts and uncles. I had around 50 cousins, um, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I'm in Jersey, know, actually, right now. I'm in New Jersey. Oh, yeah, what part? Uh, I'm in Old Bridge, so Central okay. Jersey. Okay, I'm from Keyport, Union Beach. Okay, yeah, not far. Keyport's not far, like a half yeah. hour. Okay. So, you know, that's where I grew up was Keyport, Union Beach. Um, you know, like I said, 50 cousins out of 50 cousins. I can hang out with the older cousins and I can get along. I had five cousins my same exact age. I can get along with them. Or I can hang out with my younger sister, my younger cousins, and get along with them. Um, you know, things were really, you know, very normal. Like I said, in the very beginning, I felt um, love and belonging growing up there. And around the time that I was seven years old, um, you know, my grandfather had came to Florida and seen there was a city that was just getting developed. And he decided to move to Florida with one third of my Italian family. And when we moved here, um, you know, I was very excited, you know, to kind of see what Florida was like. And I was very ignorant to the area that I, that I moved to. Um, you know, racism was very big in the city. Um, it was a lot of woods. It wasn't developed yet. Uh, segregation was still going on in the schools. And my family moved about 10 minutes away from where I lived, you know, where I grew up. And... I go from having my family in my life every day to just seeing my family on the weekends and my cousins are all going to the same school and I'm going to a different school. So I started to feel like a little separation and I started to feel like they were growing up closer, you know, and I was like the outcast. And then at the same time, because where my, my house was zoned, I had to get chipped to the uh, city next to mine and, um, due to segregation reasons, I was one of three white, white kids shipped to this school. And as soon as I get off the bus, um, I was attacked for being white. And I didn't really understand what racism was. You know, growing up, you kind of understand the difference between skin color, um, but this was when I was introduced to racism. And every day for about 30 days, I was attacked at this school for being white. So, Around that time, you know, I started going home asking my parents for answers of why this is happening to me. And my dad told me to fight. And one day I'll get the upper hand and the kids will leave me alone. Um, that wasn't really the answer I wanted to hear. So a lot of fear came in. And then I went to my mother to try to have her do something about it. And she would call the school board. And every day you get into an argument with somebody with the school board. And they would just tell her, like, you know, there's nothing you could do. The way the house is zoned, he has to go to this school. And you guys just have to deal with it. And it took her about 30 days to get me out of that school. Um, you know, once she threatened them with a lawyer, they finally started moving and, and they transferred my schools. Um, 
by then I started going to a school closer to my house. I started hanging out with the kids in the neighborhood, but I started confiding in them and telling them what had happened at the school previous. And those kids, you know, picked up that theme. And those kids looked at me as an easy target and they started bullying me. And, you know, from the age of seven until maybe 10, I was bullied every day, pretty much, you know, violently attacked. It's rough. Yeah, it was, it was pretty rough. Um, you know, by working a 12 step program and, and looking back, you know, of course they made my fourth step. Um, you know, but that kind of opened the door to some healing with that. And, you know, I just kind of realized I moved into an area with racial tension. But prior to that, um, that seven-year-old kid not having any answers, I went internal with it. You know, what's wrong with me? Why is this happening to me? There has to be something wrong with me if two sets of kids are bullying me. Um, you know, I wasn't getting answers from my, my parents of what racism was or why these kids were acting out. So, um, you know, I struggled with self-esteem from a young age, from that point forward. How did you do in school? Were you a good student? So I was a good student until um, around the age of, who, maybe eight or nine. Um, so the bullying happened when I was seven years old. Um, and that was another issue that happened was when I moved here, I completed kindergarten in Jersey. And then when I moved to Florida, they lost my transcripts. So I had to start kindergarten over again. Um, you know, so I would say around the time I was in second grade, um, I would start acting out in school. Um, I couldn't sit still. Um, you know, I guess I started becoming kind of troublesome for the teachers. But I remember one day I was sitting there and I was kind of acting up in class and, and um, I was playing around with something and I broke it and the teacher called me over and she started yelling at me in front of all the all the other students. And she was telling me that I'm a problem child and I'm stupid and I'm never going to amount to anything in life. And from that point forward, I remember, um, you know, do, through some inventory work in the, the program, um, I reflected back to a young age and I see from that point forward when that teacher told me that I just gave up on school. You know, I would just show up, I would do the bare minimum just to get my grades okay to pass. Um, but prior to that, I, re I remember looking forward to school and running home with my report cards and showing my dad and being proud of my, my report card. And, but, you know, once that second grade teacher told me that, I just gave up. Why do you think that teacher was like that? Um, honestly, I don't know. You know, um, one thing this program has taught me is it's not always a reflection of myself. Sometimes it's a reflection of the other person when they act out like that. So I don't know if maybe she was stressed out. I don't know if maybe she was kind of new at that job and she couldn't handle it. But, um, you know, I carried that, what she said with me subconsciously, I carried that with me for many years. And I always kind of thought something was wrong with me. Maybe I had a learning disability. Maybe that's why the people were bullying, you know, bullying me as well. Um, I went very internal with it and I didn't talk to anybody, you know, about any of that situations that happened until later in my years. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, nasty teacher you had there. Yeah. Because a child is so sensitive. child is so, so sensitive. You know, looking back now, you know, I have two, I have two children, I have two boys. And looking back now, you know, I'd be livid if a teacher told that to my son. Oh, yeah, of course. Did your parents ever find out what was said? 
No, actually, I, I buried it. You know, it happened. I was embarrassed because she did it in front of um. There was actually another teacher in the room, and she did it in front of the teacher and the rest of the clients. So I was kind of embarrassed by that. I didn't tell anybody. Um, shoot, I think my third year of recovery, I was talking with somebody else, and the memory kind of just came out. And it was kind of funny because what happened was is I did um an IQ test. And I always kind of thought of myself as kind of, you know, I'm not going to say stupid, but I guess I, I considered myself lazy when it came to obtaining any kind of knowledge, right? It just didn't interest me. And I took an IQ test. And um, as I was getting the results, the woman, the woman that was telling me my results, she's like, do you know your IQ? And I'm like, no, it's probably low. And she's like, actually, it's really high. And I'm like, well, what is it? And she tells me the number and she goes, you have a higher IQ than Einstein. And as soon as she said that to me, I had a flashback, instant flashback of that teacher telling me that. So I went and I did some journaling and some inventory work on there. And I kind of look back through my life and I see that, you know, that teacher telling me stupid and the fear of being embarrassed in front of the class. It was like fight, flight or freeze. And I froze and I programmed it in my head that I was stupid. Yeah, I feel that way sometimes too, because a lot of people I'll speak with them, they're like, oh, you know, you're a pretty smart guy. And I just automatically think back to all those teachers that made me feel so <laughs> stupid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I was in some slow class. Well, for math, I was in the, I went, like, if I was a senior, I was in the juniors classes. But like, I was lazy in math, because what I would say to myself, the way I would justify it is, when am I ever going to use this in my life? So like, I, I don't same. need to know geometry or algebra. I mean, the average adult does not use that in their life ever. Yeah. And I told my, myself that later in the years too, as well. And I think, um, you know, I think there was always like a little part of me that was eager to learn those things, but you know, at the back of my mind was what that teacher said, you know, so there's always that fear of why even try if I'm just gonna, if I'm just gonna fail, you know? Yeah. So what was the first time you ever used a drug or anything like that? Okay. So around the time that I was 12 years old, well, let me back up. I remember, you know, getting sips of beer here and there as a young kid and I didn't really like the taste. Um, so it would kind of deter me from drinking. But when I was 12 years old, my parents were having a new year's Eve party. And, you know, at this time I struggled with self-esteem and I was a people pleaser and I really looked up to my cousins but my cousins, um, you know, they put me up to it and they asked me to go sneak into the garage and steal some beer. So I did. And as I was walking across the, the living room of the house, my, my dad and my two uncles were standing there and they see me, of course, with a pocket full of beer and a couple in my hands. And they've been drinking and, they, you know, it's New Year's Eve, so they're pretty intoxicated. And I remember my dad tapping my uncle on the shoulder and they point to me and they all just smiled. And to me at 12 years old, I was like, okay, that's the green light right there that, you know, basically I'm the age where they, I could drink and they don't care. And I snuck back into the room. And when I, you know, started pulling all the beers out, you know, of course my cousins were giving me praise because they were kind of scared to do it. And I remember drinking with them that night. I do not remember, you know, I do not remember my first drunk. Like some people, you know, you hear some people in the room say that they remember their first drunk. Um, but I do remember drinking with them and I remember they went outside and they were smoking off a bong. They were smoking some weed 
And I remember at 12 years old saying, I'm not going to do drugs. Like I'll drink. I'm not going to do drugs. Drugs are bad. And of course, like I knew in my head at 12 years old, like what the movies depict as far as like an addict. And, but 14 was a little different. Um, at the age of 14, I got into a car accident and they prescribed me opiates and I started taking those opiates. But I noticed that if I drank alcohol, that it would enhance the effect of the opiates. So I started taking opiates every day. I started drinking every day. And then at the same age, I started smoking weed. I also started selling weed and opiates at the age of 14. What got you into selling? Um, so that's another thing, like through hindsight, um, looking back, um, you know, I always looked up to my older cousins and they, you know, at that time they were a few years older than me and they were, you know, selling drugs. And um, I realized the kids my age could not get the drugs that I can get. So looking back, I think it was more of a supply and demand, right? The kids wanted something that I had and I had it, I had, I wanted something that they could provide me. And what that was is they needed me, you know, so that kid that was bullied and that struggled with self-esteem was finally finding some self-worth in drugs because instantly I became the man, you know, the kids 14 and, and younger could not get the drugs that I can get. And it just felt good to be needed. Yeah, looking back now, you know, I justified it because I was like, oh, it's money, it's free drugs. And of course, it was those things. Um, you know, I also had a part time job working with my dad. So I had money coming in. But looking back now, it was definitely to fill my self esteem to try to fill some kind of void within me. You ever get in trouble doing that? Oh, yeah, I have a, <laughs> I have an 11 page uh, arrest record. 11 page arrest record. Let's go through each page individually. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Tell us about it though. Elaborate, please. Okay. So, um, well, my first arrest ever was a, a juvenile and me and my cousins were playing around and the house across the street from us was abandoned. We went in and burglarized it. Um, you know, of course we get caught. I get a slap on the wrist. I, I was 10 years old at the time. So I think I had to go to like a couple classes. They did a scare trait program back then. They took me to a boot camp. They, they made me go to the jail and they showed me if I continued down that life, you know, if I continued down that path, this is the life I was going to have. Um, needless to say, that scared me for a little bit. But, you know, as my addiction progressed, uh, of course, things got worse. Um, the second arrest was around the time I was 15 years old. Um, you know, I was selling those, those opiates that I was getting prescribed. Um, I was selling them at school. And of course, you know, somebody told on me that I was selling these pills and I was skipping class. And at this time I was really acting out in school and I was skipping class and I was hanging out with a bunch of guys and the school resource officer pulled up on a golf cart on one side and the Dean pulled up on the other. And of course someone had told on me, so they were looking for me and they came right up to me and they, they grabbed my backpack and they told me to go with them. And we went into the office and I went into the, the sheriff's office um, that was stationed at the school. And as soon as he opened up my backpack, he found, you know, the pills, he found the weed. Um, so that was the first time I really like was like facing some like serious trouble. And they arrested me there at the school and they transferred me to the juvenile detention facility. And I did a 24 hour hold and they let my mom come pick me up the next day. And I went to court and they ended up giving me six months probation. 
And at that time, part of that probation was I had to go see a therapist, I think every two weeks. Um, I had to do some classes. Once again, they try to take me on the scared straight program. And, um, you know, I lied, I lied my way through the therapist. I just played, you know, Hey, I was double dabbling with these and I wasn't really serious and I was doing it more to fit in with the cool kids. Um, but looking back now, my addiction was definitely, you know, I definitely had the disease of addiction back then. I was definitely powerless over drugs and alcohol back then. I just, I didn't have any knowledge of what that meant or what it looked like. Yeah. Um, so we'll fast forward a little bit, the age of 19, um, you know, I'm selling drugs, of course, I'm selling, you know, more hardcore drugs at this point. Um, I sell a friend of mine set me up with the undercover cop and, you know, I'm sitting there one day and then get a knock at the door and my house was my parents' house at that was getting raided. Um, they got me for, you know, selling drugs, different kinds of drugs and, I ended up doing 16 months in prison followed by three years of probation. And that was like, you know, um, at that time they sent me to a youthful offender prison that's no longer um, opened in the state of Florida. It was for um, people the age 24 and under. And the nickname of this prison was Gladiator School. And as soon as I got there, you know, the initiation was Friday night fight night. And as soon as I got there, I had to fight three people back to back um, as part of my initiation. And that set the whole pace for that place. You know, the whole 16 months I was walking on eggshells. How was that set up? Like the Friday night fights? What was that like? Okay. So, you know, I sat in County for two weeks waiting to get transferred to the prison. And some of my friends kind of told me they had been through there and they told me what to expect. So they said, you know, as soon as you get there, someone's going to come up to you and tell you there's a, there's a corner where the officers can't see, and that's where you go fight. And they told me, you know, as soon as you get there, you're going to have initiation and just go in there, fight, get it over with. And if you don't fight, you know, they're going to torment you. You're the whole time you're there. So I'm, I'm literally, I just got off the prison bus. I've been on the compound for one hour. I'm sitting there, I'm making my bed. And somebody taps me on the shoulder and he's like, get to the corner. Um, it had the nickname, they used to call it the paint. So he tells me to get to the paint. And I'm like, okay, let me just go get this over with. I go into the corner, me and him fight one round. I think it's over with as I'm walking out of the corner. I hear someone else say, nope, it's my turn. And I get, I got hit from the side of the face. Um, I start fighting that person. I think it's over as I'm walking back to my bed. I hear someone else say, nope, round three. And he jumps in and he starts fighting me. Um, after the second fight, I was pretty banged up and I was kind of dazed. So the, the third fight, all I know is I, all I did, like I told myself, just swing as many punches as I could. I don't know if I landed any punches. I, I, you know, I'm sure I did, but I was just so dazed after fighting two people. Um, but after that, you know, um, I went back to my bed, started making my bed, you know, I washed the blood off my face and, um, but that set the whole pace for my 16 months at this prison. You know, if, if I got a phone call and, uh, and someone answered when I got on the phone, one of my family members answered, as soon as I hung up the phone, I had a fight. If I got a letter and they called my name during mail call, I had a fight. If I got a visitation, which I did every two weeks, as soon as I got back from visitation, I had a fight. How come? Why do they have these rules that you fought with these things? So basically like there's somebody there that their family you know has never been in their life or, or their family gave up on them so they get jealous when they see somebody else's family showing love 
and you know one of those people will come up to you and you know they'll just tell you to fight and i don't know i really don't understand why it is the way it is it's you know i guess because it's a juvenile you know it's a juvenile prison and and somebody set the pace a long time ago for that and it's just kind of followed sounds like a crazy place to be yeah you know it, it definitely was and and i hated every minute of it i could not wait to get out and while I was in there, I kept telling myself, okay, when you get out, you got to cut, you know, ties with all the old friends. You got to stop selling drugs. You got to stop doing drugs. You're going to be on probation. I turned 21 while I was in there. So I was like, I'm going to drink, but I'm not going to, you know, be crazy. And the first day out, I'm right back to opiates and drinking and I'm on probation. So now I have a drug test and, you know, I was beating the system with the drug test. And, and one day, um, you know, I was going cold turkey three days right before I went and took my drug test. And one day I told myself, I'm going to bring these pills with me to probation because as soon as I come out from the office, I want to do an opiate because I've been sick. And this is where I see step one and powerlessness kick in, in my life because it's a 20 minute car ride from my house to the probation office. 10 minutes into that car ride, I find myself on autopilot turning into the gas station going into the gas station bathroom and snorting this pill. And then afterwards, I'm like, why did I just do that? I have a drug test in 10 minutes. You know, and that's where I see powerlessness kicking in my life. But um, I go to the, the, the probation office and I, I failed the drug test and I came up with an excuse why I failed. And the officer believed it and he threw my drug test away. And then I went home and I'm like, okay, that was stupid. I can't risk my freedom anymore. I'm like, how do I beat the system? How do I do this? Because obviously I cannot go three days anymore cold turkey. So I came up with this brilliant idea that I'll use all the way up until the night before. And I'll wake up early. I'll drink three gallons of water, you know, get an herbal cleaner and I'll go and I'll, I'll pass. And I went in there and I failed and they violated me. Um, with this time when they violated me, I thought I was going back to prison. The judge gave me a slap on the wrist gave me 60 days in the county jail. I did 50 off the 60. They reinstated my probation and I get out and it was the same thing. You know, this time I'm going to cut my friends off. I can't do this again. I'm risking going back to prison. And while I'm home, it was December 23rd. Um, you know, I went shopping, got my son some Christmas presents. I go home. I was planning on locking myself in the bedroom. A friend of mine calls and he's like, Hey, there's a, there's a Christmas party at this nightclub. You should come. And at first it was first thought, right. I tell him, no, I'm not going, you know, I can't do it. I just got out of jail, but then I'm sitting there and my obsession's going right. And I'm thinking about them having fun at this nightclub. I'm thinking about do them doing pills and I call him back and I tell him I'll meet him there. And then I'm there at this nightclub and I meet him. I get some, you know, I get some drugs in me and, um, I was in the bathroom and I noticed, the I noticed an undercover officer followed me in the bathroom. So I try to, you know, get away from them. I go out to the back porch. I light a cigarette. As soon as I go out there, the cops rush me. They must've seen me, you know, taking drugs while I was in the nightclub. Um, but I threw them on the ground, but still, you know, they arrested me for the possession of it. And so here it is. I haven't even been out of jail 12 hours and I'm getting locked up again. And this time I go to the county jail and I'm like, that's it. I'm going back to prison. I need to do something. I need to change my life. I go to court and the judge gives me 43 days time served and he reinstates my probation. So this time I get out, I cut all those friends off. I'm white knuckling, you know, my drug addiction, but at the same time I'm drinking. 
And um, the progression of my drinking started getting worse. And, you know, one day I relapse on opiates and now I'm back on, on opiates. Um, you know, by this time I had met a woman and she, she got pregnant, we were dating and she didn't really understand drug addiction. She kind of understood alcoholism. She drank, um, but she did not understand my drug addiction. So I'm hiding it from her. And, um, you know, I end up violating again. I end up getting my, my parents' house raided the second time. And this time um, it was just for a conspiracy because they kind of seen me, you know, um, the way I would move and meet people, they kind of started watching me again. And, you know, with my record for selling drugs, um, but they raid my house again. And this time I go to the county jail and I'm in there and I start playing the addict role, right? I need help, I need treatment, I'm begging the judge. And the judge actually sent me to a six month Christian rehab. Um, while I'm in there, I did good for, you know, the first five months I was doing good. They made me go to AA meetings. They told you to get a sponsor. And I remember walking up to some old timer and I was telling the old timer, I'm like, Hey, like I'm in this program. I need a sponsor. And he looks at me and he starts laughing. And I'm like, why are you laughing at me? And he's like, cause I'm going to give you my number, but you're never going to call me. And I'm like, no, I promise I'm going to call you. And he was right. Right. I, he gave me his name, his number, and I never called him. My intentions were, were to never call him because I still thought I could do this thing on my own. Right. I was, I had, you know, I was very ignorant to the disease of addiction or what powerlessness meant, but I did, you know, five months, I did great on my own, my own willpower. And I was doing so good. I get this thought one day, you know, what would make this better, you know, is an opiate, you know, you've been doing good. You got this family, you know, you know, you got your second kid and the family's working out. You have a good job. Everybody's looking at you as a role model in this treatment program. A pill will make this better. And I picked back up again. And my last month there, I was hiding my addiction. You know, I get released. I'm still on probation. Um, I graduate that program. And my addiction just gets bad. Once I left that treatment center, my addiction got really bad. And I'm hiding it from everybody. I'm hiding it from probation. I'm hiding it from my family. I'm hiding it from the girlfriend. You know, I'm hiding it from my boss. I'm working sun up to sundown. This way I can use and hide it from everybody. Um, I was making good money so I can afford, you know, more drugs. And then one day a friend of mine, um, I'm telling her, I'm like, listen, I'm doing like 50 pills a day and my baby mom's going to find out how much money I'm spending. And she looks at me and she goes, well, you, you know, you could use it. IV and use one pill instead of 50. And as soon as she said that, that sold me on, you know, switching to IV. And from that point, things got really bad. And I go to probation one day and I'm, it's summertime here in Florida. So it's really hot. I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt. As I walk into the probation office, they have me go into the back. And as soon as I go into the back, the probation officer grabs me and looks up my, my, um, my sleeve on my shirt. And there's track marks and there's abscesses. And she looks at me and she says, oh, don't worry. She's like, your boss called here and we're going to get you help. Uh, she's like, this is your fourth time violating. And I don't know why the judge is giving you so many chances, but she's like, you're going to go back to prison. We're going to get you the help you need. So I ran out of the probation office. Um, I had to do the walk of shame and come tell my family that I violated and there was going to be a warrant out for me. I had to tell the, my son's mother the same, and we came up with an idea to run to Miami to go stay with her family. 
And um, we did. And I was down there for about six months and the U.S. Marshals came and got me. Um, this time, you know, 27, uh, they gave me 27 months in prison. And while I was in there, I signed up for a drug program that they had. It was, it was a decent program. It was a therapeutic community. They talk a little bit about the 12 steps, but, um, you know, they gave me this, they gave me this idea that once I go through treatment, I get my little certificate that, that that's it. I'm healed. And I completed that program. And then I went to another program, a spiritual program that they had. I completed that and then they shipped me off to prison. And while I was in prison, it was the same thing. You know, my son's, my second son's mother left me. So now my addiction has cost me two relationships. Um, but it was just the same old song and dance. And I seen the routine that I had. So the whole 27 months I was in there, my whole idea was just say no, right? Change the people, places, things, and just say no. And then the day comes for me to get released from that prison and same thing, right? I, I'm hanging out with some friends and one of the, my friends tells me that they can get me opiates. And at first I say no, but now that obsession's going and I'm obsessing about them. Um, I tell her to go get me some, she does. So my first day out of prison that time, um, you know, I was using again. The second day out, I'm using again. The third day out, I'm using again. And now I'm back on them. And this time I'm not on probation and I'm not in a relationship and I have nobody to control my addiction. And things started getting really bad from that point forward. Um, you know, I lasted on the streets a couple of years. And um, at that point, um, things had gotten so bad for me, I started committing burglaries. You know, I knew that I was like one moral, you're right. I did not want to break. Um, and I also knew that there was a mandatory 30 months in prison for burglary and that there's no getting out of that 30 months if you get caught. So at first, you know, I started off breaking in cars and stealing cash and stuff like that. At the same time, I had a job and I'm selling drugs, but my addiction was so bad. I was just one big constant, you know, drug use. And if I didn't have any, I would freak out and um, I had to maintain my habit. And I get caught one day breaking in the cars and um, it happened to be the same day that the girl I was dating went to treatment and she went to treatment at six o'clock. I get arrested at 12 o'clock and I'm going to jail and I'm in the jail and she's writing me and she's telling me about this treatment center she's at. And she's telling me about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she's telling me about all these things that she's learning. And then my family bonds me out around the same time that she came back up here and she's in sober living and she's got a sponsor. And, um, this was the first time I was really introduced to the young people of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And this was the first time I really had hope in, in recovery. Um, I'm talking to people and they're not just alcoholics, they're alcoholics and addicts. And they use just like I do. And I'm talking to them and they're happy and they have years of sobriety and they have cars and they have, you know, apartments or houses and they have good jobs. And I'm like, okay, like maybe this thing is for real. And, um, you know, I got a home group, I got a sponsor, I kind of dragged my feet getting a sponsor. And, um, you know, that was a big mistake. Because those three weeks, I was watching this guy for three weeks, and I wanted to ask him so bad to sponsor me, but I was so scared he'd say no. And the day I asked him to sponsor me, and he says, yes, I'm like, Oh, thank God. And he's like, Why do you think I'd say no? And I'm like, Yeah, like, I've waited three weeks to ask you to sponsor me. And he looked at me and he said something that was very vital to me. He's like, Well, you just lost three weeks that we could have been in the big book. 
And he was right. Those three weeks, you know, I have a, I have a window of opportunity, right? On my own willpower, I can only stay sober for so long until my obsession kicks in and I obsess until the point I relapse. Um, so I did, I relapse while I'm with him and things get really bad. Basically I end up homeless and now I have this girl with me and I caused her to relapse and we're homeless and I start committing burglaries again and I'm on bond for burglary and I get caught again. And this time they racked a bunch of burglaries on me, um, you know, a bunch of charges and I know I'm going back to prison. Um, you know, I don't know if you want me to go further from here on, but this was where my real recovery started was from that point forward. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Let's definitely talk about your recovery. Okay. So of course, you know, I go into, I go into jail this time from a relapse and I have a little bit of, you know, the 12 step knowledge in me. And um, I sign up for that drug program again. And when I go into this drug program, this time it's a totally different program. It's, it's cognitive behavior therapy um, mixed with 12 step. And they have all different types of counselors. And they had one of them that was, that was very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was very 12 step, he was young. Um, and he broke down things to me like no one else has ever broke down um, you know, things before at this point. So at the same time I'm in there, but I'm still faking it till you can make it, right? I'm throwing those, those I'm like a parrot. I'm throwing those AA one-liners in when it comes time for me to share. Um, very ego-driven. I wanted to sound cool rather than it come from the heart. And while I'm in there, the lawyer comes and sees me one day. And the lawyer tells me, she's like, so I just talked to your state attorney. She's like, I just got an email from him. And she opens up this folder and she shows me the email. And she's like, we got an offer for you. And I'm like, well, what's my offer? And she's like, well, this is your third time going to prison. So the state attorney said he's going to hit you with a habitual felony offender. And by law in the state of Florida, if you're a habitual felony offender, you have to get 30 years day for day. And I remember my heart sunk. And I look at her and I'm like, well, I'm not taking the 30 years. And she started slamming her hand on the paper. And she goes, no, you're not getting what I'm saying. Like, there is no talk about what you get. Like, this is what you're getting by law. You're getting 30 years day for day in the Department of Corrections. And I told her once again, I said, I'm not taking it. She got mad at me. She slammed her folder, put it in her little briefcase, and she storms out. And my adrenaline's going. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, my addiction took me too far this time. Right? There's no coming back from this. Um, I go back to the dorm. The first people I call... I call that girlfriend and she's, you know, back in sober living. She's back with her sponsor. She's working the steps again. So she answers the phone and she's like, me and you need to talk. And I said, yes, we do. And I'm like, but you go first. And she's like, well, my lawyer, I mean, she goes, my sponsor said me and you are toxic and I need to break up with you. And I'm like, well, good. Cause I just got a 30 year offer and I hang up on her. And then I call my parents. Um, you know, my dad's always been there for me. And at this time, my mom's not talking to me. But my mom answers the phone and she's like, listen, your lawyer just called here. She talked to your dad. I don't know what she told your dad, but your dad had a heart attack while he was on the phone with her. And he's in the ambulance on the way to the hospital right now. She goes, do not call back here um, ever again. You probably just killed your father. And she hangs up on me. And then I call my second son's mom because she's the only one that will put money on the phone besides, you know, the first two phone calls. And I call her and she's like, listen, I just talked to your oldest son's mom. And both of the kids are acting out at home. They're acting out in school. And you did this to them again. She goes, do not call back here till you get your life together. 
and she hangs up on me. And then it hits me. I'm like, I just got the worst news of my life. I'm going away for 30 years and I've pushed everybody out of my life. I have nobody to share my bad news with. Nobody is there for me right now. And I walk up to my cell and I'm thinking about killing myself. And at that time, it was about to be count time and they lock us down from six to eight o'clock while they, they change shifts and do count time. And I'm sitting there and I'm planning how to do my suicide in my head and I'm tying the sheet around my neck so my roommates can't see. And I'm waiting for everybody to kind of go to sleep so I could do it. And all of a sudden I get this like little moment of clarity. And it was like, you know what? You might not get these 30 years. Just wait and see what happens. And your dad might not die, you know, but if you do kill yourself, you might give him a heart attack and you might kill him. Or if you do, um, if you do kill yourself and your dad dies, then your family's going to be planning two funerals in one week. Don't be selfish. So that was enough to kind of get me to untie the sheet. And I untie the sheet. I put it to the side of me. And anyways, I just sit there and I'm praying and I'm praying and the doors pop at eight o'clock. And um, there was a volunteer that came in to bring an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And as soon as it comes time for us to share, you know, I share and I'm telling everybody what just happened to me. And I'm telling them how I'm thinking about killing myself and I'm, I'm being vulnerable and I'm sharing from the heart. And after I get done sharing another person, they raise their hand. They tell me they're going through the exact same thing. It's their fourth time going to prison. It's 25 year mandatory sentence and everybody gave up on them. And for the first time in my life, I felt connection. I was vulnerable and I felt connection with another human being that was in recovery. And it was the first time I was ever honest in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting as well. Um, afterwards, that volunteer, he came up to me and he asked me if I was done. I told him yes. Um, he said, would you like to work the steps with me? I'll, I'll come up every Wednesday and we'll meet in a chapel of this jail and we'll, we'll go to the 12 steps. And I tell him, yes, you know, I did not think at this time recovery was possible for me, but I just wanted to stop hurting because the emotional pain was too much. Um, anyways, the next week rolls around. I'm supposed to meet my sponsor on Wednesday, but it's Monday and the drug counselor walks in and he's talking to us. And someone says, what are we doing for group today? And he says, it's powerlessness week. And someone said, why are we devoting a whole week to step one? And he said, because if, if you could program step one and you do step one, hundred percent, he said, I guarantee you'll never drink and drug again. So I hear that my hand shoots up. I'm like, so you're telling a hardcore junkie like me that if I do step one, hundred percent, I'll never drink and drug again. And, you know, he leans in, looks me dead in my eyes and he says, yes. So I said, okay. I call you. I'm going to pay attention all week. I'm starting step one with my sponsor on Wednesday. I'm going to give it hundred percent. Let's see what happens. So as I'm paying attention during these groups, he's breaking down the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then it's kind of hitting me. I'm like, man, that's me. Damn, that's me too. So I raise my hand. I'm like, you know, Hey, um, I'm like, I'm definitely a junkie. You know, I'm definitely a drug addict. I said, well, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, but I don't know. You're breaking down this book and you're describing me. He's like, all right, what is your experience, Joe? And I said, well, every time I drink alcohol, I drink the blackout. He's like, okay, what else? And I said, well, every time I try to stop doing drugs and I'm drinking, the alcohol brings me back to drugs every time. And he looked at me and he said, you're an alcoholic. And I'll never forget the peace I felt right then and there as soon as he said that to me. And I had the realization, I said, you know what, I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic and I need to work a program recovery for the rest of my life if I want to be happy. 
And it was crazy because I'm facing 30 years. Everybody gave up on me. I'm in there alone. And I felt peace. Um, so I go to my sponsor on Wednesday. I see him. We start step one. He has me do some reading, which I've already you know, been doing some reading at that time. He has me do an assignment. Um, you know, he kind of shows me that my experience, he shows me where I'm, I'm powerless. So I accept it and I see it, right? It's right there in black and white. I cannot run from it. And um, we go through step two. Um, you know, we did, you know, some reading. He gave me an assignment. Um, he looked at me. He said, do you think a power grade yourself could restore you to sanity? And I lied to him. I said, yes, but I did not think that God would get me sober at that point. Um, but that was enough to get me to step three. And we went to step three. He told me to go back to my dorm, you know, kick my roommates out, hit my knees, say the third step prayer. I do it. And I, I was like waiting for some kind of lightning bolt to hit me. And like, I was poof, I'm sober, but it wasn't like that. What happened was um, I stood up from the prayer and I'm like, do I feel any different? And I started like kind of evaluating myself. And I realized that I went from having no hope in God to having just a little bit of hope that God would get me sober. Then came time for my fourth step um, because I had some previous recovery experience. I heard so many people that are scared of the fourth step that I realized, you know what, just do it once, do it very thorough, like the big book says, and you never have to do another fourth step again. So I did that. Um, it took me about two weeks to fully get it done. And then came time for the scary part for me, which was my fifth step. You know, right now I have seven and a half years of sobriety and my sponsor has 30. So I don't know, what was it like 22 years? He was like 22 years sober. He's an old timer and I'm the hardcore junkie, you know, new age junkie. And I'm like, this old man is going to judge me. This old timer is going to judge me and tell me what a piece of crap I am once I confess all this stuff to him. So anyways, as we're going through the, we're going through my fifth step, you know, I'm waiting for him to tell me how bad of a person I am. And then as soon as we get done, he says, is that it? And I say, yes. He says, are you sure? I say, yes. He says, well, the good news is, is I forgive you. And so does God. Um, right then and there, I had a white light spiritual awakening. Um, it took an hour and 15 minutes to do my fifth step. And the officer waited the last 15 minutes in the room with us because I only had an hour session with him. So as soon as I got done with my, my fifth step, he, the officer basically grabbed me from my chair and said, come on, we got to get you back to the dorm. And as I'm walking back to the, to where my dorm is, I'm walking through the hallway and the walls are like, like eggshell white, right? They're like dirty white. Cause they don't paint it that often. And they use like a, a cheap paint in there and the windows of the, the hallway, they're up real high and it's raining outside. So it's gray. And the lighting down the hallway is not the, the greatest. But I'm walking down this hallway and, and the, the walls were glowing. They're fluorescent white. And I look at the officer. I'm like, did you guys just paint the walls? And he's like, no, why? I'm like, the walls are glowing. And I'll never forget the officer's face. He kind of cocked his head a little bit, looked at me crazy. And I always joke whenever I tell my story. To me, he gave me a look like, what kind of psych meds are you on? Mm -hmm. um, I walk mm -hmm. back into the dorm. When I walk back into the dorm, the first person I see was my best friend at that time. He had one year sober. He had a sponsor. He had worked through the 12 steps. He was sponsoring other and he was a tech in a treatment center, but his charge had finally caught up to him because he fought it for so long that he had finally had to do some jail time for it. So um, as soon as I'm walking up to him, he looks at me and he's like, what's up with you? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you look different. And I'm like, I feel like I'm high. What? I'm like, I feel like electricity is going through my body. And he's like, what? And I'm like, 
bro, I just did my fifth step. And he looked at me, he knew right then I had my spiritual awakening. Um, I told my story to that. I told my story one time and somebody came up to me afterwards and they showed me the part where, you know, Bill sees Ebby when Ebby's trying to 12 step call him and, and Bill says there's something different in his eyes that he could tell the difference. And my buddy showed me that he's like, look, this is the same thing. You know, Bill could see something different in Ebby and he's like, your friend seeing something different in you. And from that point forward, I was sold on Alcoholics Anonymous right there. I was sold on the 12 steps. I fully believed in God. You know, I went through six and seven. My sponsor told me the importance of six and seven and, and you know, giving God all of me, every single character defect, good and bad. He taught me the difference between six and seven. And he also told me six and seven is the meat and potato of the programs. You know, he said, my whole program is going to rest upon how I practice humility and I give God my character defects. You know, I can tell you at over seven years sober, he was 100% correct. Character defects crop up all the time and I have to work on eliminating them with the help of God. Um, we got to step eight. You know, I was going to prison. I knew I was going to prison. So my sponsor is like, okay, these ones you could write letters to. These ones, when they talk to you on the phone, you can do a phone amends. He's like, these ones you have to wait till you get out. He's like, these ones are living amends and these ones are financial amends when you, whenever you get out of prison. I started right away. I started writing letters. No one would talk to me on the phone at that point. Um, I started getting letters back. Everybody, you know, it was like, you know, they were just happy that I was sober, but they also didn't fully believe yet that I was sober doing the right thing. Cause I was in jail. Um, you know, we went to step 10. He showed me the importance of step 10. We went to 11. He showed me the importance of prayer and meditation daily. And then as soon as we get to chapter 12 and we read, um, I mean, uh, the chapter working with others for step 12, I remember as soon as I shut the book, I'm like, what now? And he looked at me, he's like, what now? He's like, now it's time to start sponsoring people. Um, I looked at him and I chuckled and I'm like, I'm an inmate in jail and I'm going to prison. Like, who's going to want me to sponsor them? And he's like, don't worry, me and Chaplain Dave, we meet every Wednesday. And he's like, we have a little prayer group. And he's like, we're going to put, pray that God puts people in your life that you can help. You know, every day for over seven years, they've prayed that prayer uh, on every Wednesday. So shortly after that, um, the lawyer comes and sees me. She tells me she got him down to 10 years day for day. You know, at that time, I'm being kind of hard headed. I tell her to get me five years. I'll sign five years. She says, no, it's either 10 or 30. And I'm like, nope, get me five. I'll sign five, you know, because I wanted to go back home so bad. And needless to say, um, they did an emergency court hearing about 20 minutes after the lawyer left. I go into the courtroom. And the state attorney walks over to the judge and hands him a paper to habitual felony offender me. And the offer was 30 years. The 10 years was off the table. And as the lawyer is going over, I mean, sorry, the judge is the judge is going over all the formalities and explain everything to me. You know, my stomach drops in my stomach. I start praying. The judge asks me to plea out if I have anything to say. I tell the judge, you know, for the first time ever, I've changed my life. I've been an addict all my life. I'm not making excuses for my actions. I'm taking accountability. But like for the first time ever, I know what recovery is due to my program. And I just asked him to be lenient on me. And I said, I would take you know, responsibility for the crime. Anyways, the judge takes recess. And when he comes back, he gives me six years in prison, followed by four years probation, a habitual felony offender sentence. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, am I in shock right now? Because, you know, this is the most time I've ever gotten in prison. But like, I felt like I felt at peace. And as they're walking me over to go fingerprint me, I'm sitting there and I'm like, am I in shock or what's going on here? 
And in my own voice, I remember like saying to myself, no matter what you go through, God's got you. God's going to protect you. And looking back now, like in the beginning of my story, I had no faith in God whatsoever. And then here it is, I'm going into a six-year prison bid and, you know, I have complete faith on God. And, and you know, it was a confidence in God. Um, so we'll fast forward a little bit. I go to prison. Shortly after that, as soon as I got there, I got involved with Alcoholics Anonymous meetings um, right away. Um, I started chairing the meetings in there. Um, I started sponsoring three guys. I started teaching an IOP drug program. Um, what I was doing was I was teaching this program to get my hours. The staff in there fell in love with me. They heard my story. They told my story to um, an organization that helped me get my certified addictions counselor while I was in there. Another organization stepped in and paid for it completely. Um, it took 16 months to accomplish that. I wrote a couple articles for the grapevine, you know, I get out and, um, you know, I've been sober since, man, I hit the ground running as soon as I got out this time. I'm very involved in the recovery community now. Step 12 keeps you sober. Definitely, you know, and it's a lifeline. Um, you know, I was telling, I, I work in a treatment center now. I'm a therapist in a treatment center. And I was telling my clients, we were going over like a Russell Brand's version of the 12 steps. And yeah. I said, I feel connected to my higher power when I'm working with another addict and alcoholic, right? Whether it's me as a therapist, whether it's me as a sponsor, whether I'm speaking at a meeting, whether it's right now when I'm speaking to you, I feel that connection, right? And that's step 12. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Those guys figured out really how to uh, handle people with addiction. You know, going back how long? Nineteen thirty-five. Yeah, they figured all this out. Yeah, you know, and as a matter of fact, I was telling my clients <clears throat> that, and, you know, Bill Wilson, you know, he was smart enough to grab some stuff from the Oxford Group and from Doctor Silkworth and a couple other places. And at first they were using the six tenants, you know, and, and part of that was service and helping another person, but he tweaked it in a way where, I mean, the solution is so simple, but yet it's so profound. Yeah. It's a, a book that changed history. Yes. It definitely changed my life. And millions of others. But let me ask you one last question. Do you have any advice for people listening and watching? Um, I do, you know, surrender, right? Surrender to the program, you know, accept the suggestions that are offered. If you are going to work a 12-step program, get a sponsor, right? Get a sponsor, work the steps. That's the program of action. That's the, our program of recovery. Um, you know, also too, you know, um, I recently wrote and published a book. I, I have you know, basically what I've learned throughout my, my process, I've put into this book and I realized, you know, one of my biggest things that I'm up against is fear. And when I first come into recovery, I am scared, right? I'm scared that I'm going to relapse. I'm scared to get my hopes up and even put any effort in because I'm scared. I'm just going to relapse anyway, because my history is relapse. I'm scared to get with another man or another woman. If you're a woman and be vulnerable and, and confess all my shortcomings, because I'm scared to get judged. You know, usually I've been hurt in my life, so I have a fear of, and I'm scared to trust people. Um, I mean, I can go down the list. I'm scared of, my, you know, someone discovering my deep, dark secrets because I'm so ashamed of my deep, dark secrets that I try to hold on to them. And all that does is hinder us, you know? Yeah. 
And like the, like the, the big book says, the results are nil until we let go absolutely. And somebody looked at me one time and they said, do you know what nil means? And I said, no, what? And they said, less than zero. The results are less than zero unless we let go absolutely. And then, you know, another one of my favorite parts of the big book, half measures avail us nothing, right? If I do half the work, I get no results. And we always talk about it has to be 100% and we have to give it our all. But in the beginning, I was giving it maybe 65, 70, 75, 85%. Some days were different. You know, I was very scared and I had to work through that, you know, but the process was so worth it. That's great. I'm happy for you. That's really a great thing. It's amazing how how it works. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a great program. Like I said before, it's helped millions. I think right now it's estimated that there's 2 million members of AA wow. worldwide. So that's a lot of people. Yeah, it is. That's a lot of people. So did you have anything else you wanted to throw in? Um, you know, I don't, if you don't oh, mind. Real quick, real quick before you start, um, Tell us about your book. Okay, so I, I just recently wrote and published a book. It's called Fear, Face Everything and Rise. Um, you know, basically, as I became a primary therapist working in treatment, I started doing a lot of trauma work. And I have did a lot of work on my trauma. But I see a, a very big correlation between fear and trauma as I'm doing the work, right? Like in, in AA, we do the fear inventory. And I learned that all my character defects are traced back to fear. And in the same way, I realized that trauma produces a fear and either, either whether it's the trauma or the fear, but we're, our whole decision-making process is based off of either the trauma or the fear. And by basically, you know, working my program in hindsight later on, as I wanted to get deeper into the program, um, I learned um, from another AA, I learned the importance of a very thorough fear inventory. And that's where I started seeing the correlation with the trauma and the fear. But basically, I provide a, um, a book with an easy formula. You know, I didn't make the formula up. I learned the formula for other people in recovery, how to go deeper into a fear inventory. And I, what I do is I, I give the formula in the first chapter. I don't waste no time. I get, I get right to the solution. And then the rest of the book is my story and how either the trauma or the fear affected me. So I give the problem of that, I show the problem, and then I talk about the solution, what happened once I, I used the solution to face that fear or trauma. Um, you know, the book's been published for less than 45 days. Um, I've been getting amazing feedback from the recovery community. I have people Facebook messaging me, you know, asking me actually non-alcoholics and non-addicts messaging me that they got their hands on the book asking me if I can help them with certain fears or trauma in their life. Um, it, it's crazy, you know, and, and, you know, we talked about the big book in the program, you know, all of this is just information I've learned through the big book and um, through recovery and through other AAs. And then I use my story to kind of show people how they can, you know, I use it for identification reasons. If they can identify with my story and how that trauma affects their life, then they, they can go right to the root of that trauma on themselves and they could work on removing that trauma or that fear, you know? And that's a great approach. So far, it's gotten some really good feedback, you know, and, and it feels good to, you know, once again, be of service to the recovery community. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and doing this. How do you feel? 
I feel, I feel amazing. Like I said, once I do any kind of 12 step work, I feel the power of God in me. That's you know, great. It's, it's addicting, but thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. No problem. I really appreciate you coming on. So for everybody watching and listening, I hope you like what you saw and heard. If you did go below and give us a like also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I also suggest you take a look at our website, www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find plenty of resources as well as free literature. So I hope you guys once again like what you saw and heard. And until next time.